I'm Melanie Sayward and you are tuning in to The Pink Elephant. Hi there and welcome back to The Pink Elephant Podcast where we talk about the biggest undiscussed issue in the body of Christ that despite everything we know about faith and the Christian life, it can feel like there is something missing. In the last few episodes, my goal has been to investigate this idea of depth in our faith, because I believe that the experience of our faith and the reason we can feel like something is missing has a lot to do with the fact that in our modern Western version of faith, we simply aren't going deep enough. What I really wanted to make clear before we move on to other related topics is that the effect of having a lack of depth in our faith is twofold. Firstly, it affects our commitment and resilience in being faithful followers of Jesus. As I demonstrated in the last episode through the parable of the sower, we are far more easily tempted and distracted by other pursuits that we think will give us the kind of significance, security and satisfaction that only God can really do when we lack depth in our faith. But secondly, it affects the richness of what we experience by having Jesus in our lives. Peace and joy are just a few of the areas we are told by default we receive when we have Christ in our lives. And it's true. These are all qualities that are immediately accessible to us the moment the Holy Spirit enters our life. But we quickly realize that having the Holy Spirit doesn't guarantee that we will experience the fullness of those qualities immediately. And that's because we aren't generally deep enough in our faith journey at that point. My concern is that there is a multitude of believers who have received Christ years ago that still aren't experiencing the fullness of those Holy Spirit qualities. And it's not the Holy Spirit's fault. We are told that we receive the Holy Spirit in full measure. We don't each get a portion. We get the whole Holy Spirit and everything that the Holy Spirit is comes into our hearts. See, it's our existing beliefs, mindsets, and even sin that limit our comprehension of the gospel and limit the Holy Spirit. As the gospel begins to revolutionize how we think and how we live by shifting and moving out the things we once believed, it makes room for the Holy Spirit to become the primary influencer of our inner world. Peace and joy follow soon thereafter. See, we don't realize that we have very anti-peace producing beliefs and anti-joy producing beliefs. And Jesus tells us in Mark 3.25, if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. We can't both have an incessant need to control and experience freedom. We cannot have peace and still be obsessed with what others think of us. We cannot have joy and simultaneously wish that everything in our life was different. Either we accept some hybrid version of peace that in actuality is not true peace at all, or we eventually crumble under the pressure of trying to maintain these two conflicting ideas and allow one to reign over the other. Or we become highly disillusioned and stuck. No doubt we are going to talk more about these anti-peace producing beliefs and anti-joy producing beliefs. Of course we will, because they are ultimately a threat to the seed taking deep root and producing a harvest. So in the last episode, we had a look at the parable of the sower, and I promised that we would revisit one last element of that parable before we moved on. Yes, let's talk about the harvest. 
The parable tells us that when a person receives the word and obeys it, they produce a harvest of 30, 60 and 100 times more than what was first planted. But what exactly is the harvest? What would we be seeing and producing on account of the gospel? What is the fruit of the gospel? Conceptually, fruit is often assumed to be the outcome or result of the plant. By nature, a plant, if it is receiving the right nutrients, will produce an associated fruit. When Paul says in Galatians that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and so on, he is saying that if the Holy Spirit is able to have his way in our lives, these are the kinds of things we would see it producing in us. This is the evidence that he is at work in our lives. And certainly in the context of that passage, Paul was establishing a framework for discerning the presence of God in a person's life, whether it be someone else or ourselves. Now, most Christians would agree that this is what is meant by harvest or fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So we could just finish this discussion right here, right? Case closed, problem solved. But in light of a passage I read earlier this week, 1 Peter 2 verse 1, in which Peter is telling us to rid ourselves of hypocrisy, I feel it is my duty to call out a rather large pink elephant. If we were to look only at the culture and therefore values of the Christian world, the fruit of the Spirit is not what we think harvest looks like. In fact, people who have these kinds of qualities are rarely praised, affirmed, chosen or elevated in the Christian world on the fruit alone. The things that are deemed as fruitfulness are sadly rather similar to that of the world and they can all be brought under this overall banner called success. So success isn't a dirty word. Some people have become very successful but have never pursued it. They were simply being faithful with what was put in their hand. So don't feel bad if you are successful. But why would we need to talk about this? Even if we differ on what we think success is, we all have some subconscious ideas of what success looks like. And it's often that image of success that judges the fruit of another person and distracts our fruit-producing journey. And worse yet, we are often culturally affirming this confusion. Based on what we can see, we have culturally affirmed success as the following. Number one, being influential, having an impact or making a difference. We think it's about being a world changer. We're often diminishing or elevating the role of a person based on how prominent they are. We will diminish the mundane and everyday thing and elevate the loud, spectacular thing. Now, I love Hillsong and I'm grateful for everything they have done for the body of Christ. And I was genuinely proud when they were able to have the name of Jesus displayed across Times Square in New York. But as a Christian community, we often will presume that was more impacting than the faithful Christian servant who serves the poor with food every week, even though they are probably having as many opportunities to share the gospel as that sign gave for other believers. We see it every day in local churches. Every local church has some form of community arm, but the church gets far more excited about the difference their brand new CD is going to make than the thousands of people that will come through their community arm 
literally experiencing Jesus through their volunteers. And that will be reflected in budgets too. The community department is often getting way less airtime and exposure and can be limited in funding, but the creative team often has a pretty big budget. Now, I know every leader is going to have some reason they can give me for why that is, but you can't tell people that the way they spend their money represents their values and fail to apply that rule to a church budget. We think influence is being wow rather than faithful and consistent in the mundane. Number two, we generally presume that success looks like a person who has it together. They are focused, clear, ultra-disciplined, basically control their minds and bodies with precision and consistency. They have mastered themselves. They are effective and efficient, so much so that we will often shun and exclude the people that are struggling which creates a culture where people aren't always honest about where they are really at. Even though one of the biblical favourites, David, was so disgustingly honest. Do you know how many times he asked God to smite his enemies? Okay, he doesn't say smite. I just really enjoy that word. But he says some pretty intense things. We would feel so bad if we were ever to be so blatantly open with God let alone others. Let's face it, we're all pretty messed up, but we all present as sweet as pie because we think successful Christians have it all together. Number three, we have ideas about what successful people wear. The average Christian knows exactly what I'm talking about. Many of us can walk into a church or conference and pick up very quickly what that group of people believe represents successful Christian living. Sadly, the appearance of success sometimes deters those who feel broken, or at least those who feel like their brokenness is more visible to others. This gets even more interesting when it comes to women in ministry. I can tell you that in Australia, we usually don't think of women in ministry as without makeup, terribly unfashionable and overweight. Okay, number four there is a good chance we think success looks big. The bigger the church, the more likely we are to listen to the leader. We don't just listen to anyone. I really can't think of any pastors I know of that are on a public scale that have a small church. We generally think they must be doing something right because apparently healthy things grow. You know, I heard that statement a hundred times when I was a pastor and it confused and confounded me every time. There are equally as many unhealthy things in this world that grow, like weeds that apparently are capable of choking out your faith, according to the parable of the sower. What about cancer? Literally any disease. That statement is used as validation that when you are doing things right, you'll grow. But I think we may have oversimplified things, don't you? Okay, before you turn off this episode, fellow leader, I am not against growth. I'm merely pointing out that our behaviours and catchphrases suggest that we think growth equals success. And I'm simply saying that not all growth is good growth. There are some churches out there that are definitely growing, but most of their growth is from unsatisfied believers giving up on churches that were challenging their apathetic ways. Now, why would you celebrate that? 
Number five. We also think success sounds a certain way. In charismatic circles, introverts can often feel really out of place because a believer that is truly moved by God and is successfully living by the Spirit of God will have natural authority. They will be passionate, direct, loud, and be ready to punch the enemy in the face. And if you don't believe me, listen for the times when people agree with a yes, Lord, or an amen in your next prayer meeting. I sadly know the exact things to say if I am wanting more of a response and affirmation from others in a prayer meeting. And of course, I've never used that to my advantage. But consequently, the quiet contemplators in a prayer meeting have in error been presumed to have some deficit in their faith, even when they may be the most fruitful person in the house. It's all right, Pentecostal introverts, I've heard your cry. In the more conservative circles, that probably isn't typical of success. The more conservative style churches like contemplation, wisdom, thoughtfulness, eloquence, Their prayers are paced, unrushed, with profound wisdom and discernment and potentially more pauses for reflection. Not the Pentecostals, though. They can't stand silence. In Pentecostal and charismatic churches, during worship, two seconds of silence means the worship leader has botched the song and it's a cue for another bridge. Anyway, I've digressed. But as you can see, we all have an image of what we think a fruitful believer will behave like. And it's got more to do with what we define a successful Christian to be than the presence of actual fruit. At my old church, there was this awesome man that everyone knew. He could talk your ear off. He was passionate, encouraging, and there were very little breaths in his conversation to say, okay, I got to go now. I absolutely loved this guy. I often saw more authenticity in his faith than the pastors I would meet. He was so desperately seeking to live a real life of faith for God. Every weekend he would be out helping someone in the church, some someone that other people didn't necessarily like, you know, needy people, hard to love people, those overlooked ones, the widows, the elderly. He never wanted any kudos for it. He would be constantly giving people gifts and money and presents just to bless them. He would actually hate that I'm saying this because he wouldn't want it to ever feel like he did it for attention. In fact, if I praised him because I would often find out what he'd been doing, he would get upset at me and he would tell me not to tell anyone. He did it because of a conviction of what Jesus had done in his life. That is fruit. He probably won't ever preach from some pulpit. And if he did, you'd be desperately trying to work out how to get him off. But he loved people deeply in action and in word and was never thinking about what he could gain from it and whether it would make him a successful Christian. See, the problem with mistaking success as fruit is that success can change us. I would argue that success is a slipperier slope to sin than failure. Success can make people feel the wrong type of power. Empowerment, the buzzword of the century, is a good type of power. It makes people recognize their choices and responsibility. On the other hand, the bad kind of power can have you doing some things that you'd thought you'd never do. In my first book, Ministry Stinks, I talk about this idea that I termed the stewardship of power. 
Basically, it is the ability to ensure that you stay humble in the face of power. And why would that even be relevant? Well, the answer to that can be found in 2 Chronicles 26, where the writer presents a character named King Uzziah, who was the king of Judah for about 50 years. In verse 11, we're getting the rundown of the stats, the number of leaders he had, the number of men, the weaponry. And in verse 15, we are told that the Lord gave him favor and his fame spread far and wide. But then there is this statement that changes the entire flow of the passage. It says, but when he had become powerful, he also became proud, which led to his downfall. And it goes on to say that he sins. It was the power which no doubt had something to do with the success he had attained that caused King Uzziah to become proud. And the same can happen to us because we can start to think that we did something right and therefore we are special and superior to those around us. Unchecked pride can turn into entitlement. We start to believe that we deserve special treatment because we are special. We can even begin to demand it. And when we've decided that we're special and by default everybody else is not, we see less concern with treating others poorly because after all, you deserve it. They don't. It's your reward. Christians are often shocked when they hear about well-known and faithful believers who have entertained these secret lives of sin. We wonder how they were able to compartmentalize the abuse or the sin and still be able to stand up and minister so profoundly. It's quite simple, really. Power is not easy to handle. It takes vigilant intentionality to ensure that you don't get puffed up with pride by what you are doing and achieving. Power can have us doing many things we never thought we were capable of doing. There's more examples of this in scripture too. Consider David, a man after God's own heart, who writes some of the most poetic psalms in complete surrender to God. When he used Bathsheba, he should have been out with his men. The sentence in 2 Samuel starts with, at the time when kings would go off to war. Why wasn't David off warring? He was a king. Yeah, he was allowed to do as he wished, but not exactly. He still had a role to play as a king, and leading his men into war was a critical component of that role. We know this because it is mentioned earlier in 1 Samuel 8, verse 19 to 20, when the Israelites are providing their reasons for wanting a king. Every other king would have been out there with their men, but the king of Israel, the most significant king of all, was nowhere to be seen. Power made him think that he could pull a sick day on the most important task in his job description. Power made him think that he could take a married woman as his own and he probably didn't have her consent. A woman who was married to one of his men who was fighting in a war that David should have been at. And power made him think that he could avoid the consequences of his poor choice by killing the man. King Solomon is another character who couldn't handle power. We call him the wisest man in the world, but he is certainly unwise for the number of times he disobeys God's laws. 
We have often focused on his straying on account of his wayward wives, but he was compromising well before that. Firstly, he marries outside of the Israelite community. Then he reinstigates slave labor. Yeah, that's right. The very reason the Israelites were delivered from Egypt, which God had made very clear was never to happen again. What made him think he could do that? Was he not aware of how he got that role? It was God who gave him the wisdom. And here again, we see a king using power for his own gain. The problem with when churches are driven by success and when success has become their idol is the outcome, a bunch of leaders who don't really love their people. Now, I can't simultaneously love someone without agape love and have an agenda that predominantly benefits me. According to Corinthians, that would fail to be love, and yet love is the primary source from which all service is derived. You know, in contrast, real fruit doesn't actually change us. It can't. Fruit is a result of the change that is already occurring within us. So confession time, this is an area that I have struggled in much of my life. Selfish ambition was a real challenge for me prior to really pursuing faith, like maybe 20 years ago. It's been a very deliberate journey of mine to work through because thankfully I realized my desire for success often stood in the way of me loving people and God well. When I was around 18, coming out of school, success was 100% my vision. I was so committed to the list of accolades. I didn't realize how much this desire had been spurred on by a deeper need for significance and validation. I wanted to know that I was good enough and success was what I had decided would confirm that I was. It's taken a long time to redirect those needs toward Jesus, but I'm glad to say that I rarely do things for significance these days. 98% of what I do is out of obedience and submission to God and his plan for my life. But you know, it still rears its ugly head every now and then. Even last week, I found myself getting a bit too consumed with the sales relating to my book. You know, ultimately, I wrote this book that I believed would help people who were genuinely hurting. And I wanted to equip them with some tools that could help them heal. But last week, as I saw a few dollars coming into my account, I got a little distracted there for a bit. And I didn't realize that I was measuring the effectiveness of the message by how well the book was selling. When I realized it, I had to stop and repent. I had to remind myself that the message was far more important than the money and that this had to be about the message. All of this had to be about the message, that technically I should be willing to go broke for the sake of this message, which probably won't happen, of course. Now, I'm sure there will be temptations again to measure my fruitfulness by the success of the book instead of actual fruit, but I'm hoping that I get better and better at handling such things, especially as I keep choosing to stay true to the real fruit. So let's take another view of fruit from a deeper standpoint. If we were to really care about fruit, the real fruit as we've defined it through scripture, not success, but love, joy, peace, and all of those good things that the gospel can produce in us, we would recognize that who we are is of far greater value than any trial or accolade or blessing that could be obtained this side of eternity. 
We would be like David who at one point says to God, point out anything in me that offends you. That's in Psalm 139. This statement reveals that at least in this moment, he is far more concerned about pleasing God than being right. He cares about who he is and not what he would have to sacrifice were there to be a fault found in him. Or like the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3, who has been listing off every attribute and accolade that he had that would give him superior status in the Jewish world. And yet he declares it all rubbish. Nothing in his past, the good or the bad, was worth more than having gained Christ. Peter in 1 Peter 1 says that the refining of faith is far more precious than gold. In Romans 5 verse 3, it says we can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials, for we know that they help us develop endurance. James 1 2, which basically says it is a joyful thing to have an opportunity for hardship. Here's the thing. No average human being would ever think that hardship is something to celebrate, especially not the kind of hardship they were facing in the early church. The only way a human being concludes this insane idea that trials can make them happy is when they understand the value of the fruit. They can see that the fruit is worth it. They can see that who they become because of the challenges is far more precious than gold. And the fruit is worth it, friends, because when you become a more grounded believer who has more peace, more joy, more love, everything looks better. You interpret the world differently. Someone doesn't like me? Yeah, that's cool. I still like them. Someone's judging me? Fair enough. That's between them and God. They overlooked me? Cool. I'm, I'm not really sure I really want to be seen anyway. Everything looks different when we grow in the fruits of the Spirit. Imagine how valuable trials are for us then if they could produce a different me, a more Christ-like me. Instead of trials being something to avoid, they become a gift. One last thought before I sign off this pretty heavy episode. Real fruit points to Jesus. When you can stand up and say that you had nothing to do with the goodness that now flows through you, you know you have real fruit. Because there is only one type of seed that can produce real fruit like that. The gospel. For instance, I can't love my enemies without understanding the love of Jesus. I can't rejoice in the face of persecution without the Holy Spirit that comforts me. I can't have peace when I have no food without the God who sustains me. I can't love someone without expecting absolutely nothing in return, except for the fact that my needs are being met in the love of Jesus. My nature and your nature doesn't produce that kind of fruit. Only the gospel produces that kind of fruit, and that's why only the seed can produce the harvest. Well, I hope this episode has challenged your views on what it means to be fruitful and the kind of goals you might be setting for yourself in this life. 
In the next episode, we will unpack another area in which we can see a lack of depth limiting our experience of faith. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Pink Elephant. You can follow me on Instagram, Facebook, or you can check out my resources on my website, meljsayward.com. 